Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lecture, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Ludwig van Beethoven. It's not surprising that not many people in this country listen to very much classical music, when for years the only place you could hear it was on Radio 3 which had these passionless presenters. You could put them on a pirate radio station and they'd go, this next piece comes in five movements, two verses, two choruses, and a middle eight. And it's interesting to note how the composer, Mr. Snoop, doggy dog, <laughs> lends the harmony with the lyrics as they begin, I'm a cop killer gonna shoot you up the arse. This is also a story of how real musical genius is impossible without passion. For example, I went to the Reading Festival, and the first band on was a punk band on in a tent at 10 o'clock in the morning. Not only could you not understand the lyrics, you couldn't understand the introductions. Everyone was, this is one way we And I thought, this is fantastic, because first of all, how can anyone be that angry that early in the morning? It takes time to build up through the day, surely anger, doesn't it? Oh, I can't find the tea strainer. Oh, just remember there's a bloke called Ben Elton. Oh, get in there. <laughs> Beethoven was born in Bonn in Germany in 1770, except that there wasn't really a Germany at that time. It was made up of 39 states. Bonn was the centre, though, of the German Enlightenment, promoting the ideals of science, of reason, of unified nations against the ideals of monarchies. And one organisation promoting these ideas, more than anybody else, was the Freemasons, who were considered such a threat, they had to concoct secret rituals and handshakes that they didn't dare be open about who was a member. The Freemasons! It's like hearing that the MCC started out as an anarchist collective. <laughs> and then at some point in the last 200 years, someone must have got up at a Freemasons meeting and said, I've got an idea. What about if, instead of aiming for an overhaul of a hierarchical society, we concentrate on getting each other's charges dropped when we're done for drink driving. <laughs> Beethoven's greatest early influence was an enthusiastic member of the Masons, Mozart. Mozart was born 14 years before Beethoven and he became a Freemason because of his frustration at a society that viewed everyone according to the rank they were born into, including musicians, who were considered as servants to play like performing animals for the royal court. An advert in a Vienna newspaper read, A musician is wanted who plays the piano well and can sing too must also perform the duties of a valet de chambre. So Haydn had to wear a servant's uniform at all times. Mozart performed for Archbishop Colorido and had to sit at the table just above the cooks but below the valets. And Ludwig was clearly a brilliant musician. But his originality became apparent when he began to be taught by a man called Christian Neef. Neef taught him to write stuff as complicated as he liked, not to worry about nobles who might not be able to follow it. So Beethoven got into trouble for writing deliberately complicated scores. His first orchestral work, which he wrote when he was 14, was described like this. Beethoven uses not just semiquaver runs, but demi-semiquavers, hemi-demi-semiquavers, and even at one point, semi-hemi-demi-semiquavers. <laughs> Snotty little ponce. <laughs> See, that's where he could have done with being from a working-class background. Instead of indulging him, they'd have clipped him around the ear and said, do that again and I'll semi-emi-demi-semi-quaver you, you show off. 
But his was a genius connected to the Enlightenment values he'd been brought up with. And as the French Revolution began with Beethoven still only 18, and the revolutionary atmosphere had an impact on him in one obvious way in that it signalled the end of musicians relying on royal patronage. Haydn left the royal courts in 1790, Mozart stopped working for royalty, and Beethoven could spend his life working freelance. And the revolution also affected him in 1792 when he moved to Vienna, as his stagecoach was held up for a day when it ran into the French Revolutionary Army on their way to fight the Prussians. Now, being European and radical and a musician taught to be passionate, Beethoven was fascinated by this. Whereas if he was English, he'd have gone, Oh, isn't the traffic terrible? <laughs> Ten miles we've been down to one lane because of these blooming cannons. Why they have to do it all at weekends, I don't know. <laughs> Beethoven didn't quite fit into the classical school, partly because he thought that music should be less ordered and less mathematical, and his reaction was to become one of the first romantics, who were supporters of the ideals of the French Revolution, but opponents of the trend in the modern world for everything to become functional. So even the tempo of a piece of music, said Beethoven, must not be a controlling tyrant nor a mechanical hammer. It should be to a piece of music what the pulse is to a man. It might also explain why one of the first concertos that he wrote was for a violin that had to be held upside down. <laughs> Never mind his influence on classical music, Beethoven invented the 1960s. <laughs> I reckon on bank holidays he went down to the coast on his Lambretta to have gang fights with the Baroques. <laughs> And there was another aspect of Beethoven's innovations that were driven by the ideals of the Romantics and the French Revolution, the celebration of the individual, in the sense that any individual could aspire to greatness. One musicologist described him as... Rejecting what is universally human for what is individually human. And for that generation, the man who embodied the spirit of everything that was individually human was Napoleon. It's hard to imagine how radicals must have felt about Napoleon, because he was not only revolutionary, but he was winning encouraging millions like Beethoven to continue being stroppy and defiant politically, culturally and personally. For example, the part of Beethoven's job that he most disliked was teaching wealthy students who didn't have any real ability in music. One student said that he turned up at Beethoven's flat for a lesson and then... He rushed to the piano and I took a seat in the corner where he forgot about me. He stormed on for about an hour, then got up and, surprised to see me still there, said, I cannot give you a lesson today, I have work to do. <laughs> When he did give his lessons, his students were often surprised when he would ignore their mistakes, saying that these didn't matter as they'd eventually learn the right ones. So what teaching is that? <laughs> so it just occurred to me, I could do that. Yeah, you'll pick it up. <laughs> the most important thing he said was that they played with passion. And his insistence on passion and his eccentricity weren't just a result of some disorder, they were a consequence of his belief in individuality. And this belief, it seemed to him, was embodied by the victories of Napoleon, which is why Beethoven was ecstatic when the French ambassador to Austria suggested his third symphony should be dedicated to Napoleon, and why this symphony, called the Eroica, was so original. It was twice as long as almost any previous symphony, it was more complex than anything previously written, and lots of it was in E minor, which apparently is really hard. <laughs> Also, it was a complete piece of work, as if it was telling a story rather than comprising a series of tunes, with its grand openings representing military victories and its funeral marches depicting the death of old values. So it was the first piece of music attempting to paint a picture, but mostly it was original because it was so big. It was unlike any previous music because it makes you want to put it on at top volume, open the window and lean out shouting, Stop what you're doing and listen to this, you bastards! <laughs>
This is also why my parents' generation was so wrong when they'd come into your room going, Turn it down! There's no need to have it that loud! You'll be deaf by the time you're 30! So I'd turn it down. Squeak! And then they'd be back in, right, I'll turn it down. Give me that spanner. Mm, 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 mm. But there is a need to have it that loud. It's all right when you're listening to James Last or Mantovani. But not for what I was listening to. I was left with, one, two, three, four, Sheena is a punk rocker. (laughs) And it's the same with Beethoven. Ask anybody how Beethoven goes and they go, da-da-da-da, not di-di-di-peep. And this third symphony was about Napoleon. This is why Beethoven made it so huge, because you can have some squelchy little weed from pop stars going, I will always love you, but that's why no one from pop stars has ever invaded Italy. (laughs) On the other hand, if anyone did shout, you'll be deaf by the time you're 30 at Beethoven, I bet it was tempting a few years later to go, I told you! But then the story of the Third Symphony underwent an extraordinary twist. The music had been written, along with the dedication to Napoleon on the opening page, it was printed and ready to be published, and then Ferdinand Rees rushed in to tell him that Napoleon had abandoned his republican values and declared himself emperor. And once Beethoven had taken this in, he went into a rage, he ripped out the title page of the symphony, and he scratched out the word Bonaparte with such anger that he ripped the paper to bits. Which I suppose you would if your Republican hero has just made himself king. A bit feeble if he'd just gone, oh dear, and gently rubbed it out with the rubber on the end of his pencil. (laughs) Despite all this, several historians suggest this symphony wasn't really about Napoleon all that much. One biography claims that Beethoven only liked him because he was drawn towards powerful figures. So it could have been anyone. Marie Antoinette, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sven-Jürgen Eriksson. (laughs) Napoleon was just the first to spring to mind. It's like if in 200 years' time people said, oh, the specials weren't really that bothered about Nelson Mandela, they just attracted to people in jail. (laughs) And it scanned well, you see. If they'd left it a few years, it would have been free, Jonathan Aitken. At the time, everyone seemed well aware of the themes it was portraying, even after the change of plan with the dedication. It was banned in Prague for being morally corrupting. And the first performance in Germany, somebody cried out, I'll pay all over again if it will just stop! So why was this? In some ways, every generation thinks there's a certain sort of music that is proper music. You can see this on Stars in Their Eyes. Every song has to be a certain sort of proper song. That's why I'd love to go on Stars in Their Eyes as Eminem. Because everyone has to do that first bit where the audience all claps, you know, where someone comes out as Shirley Bassey and they go, Goldfinger, and everyone has to go, ooh. (laughs) It's their way of saying, oh, we know this one. (laughs) So it'd be brilliant to go on as Eminem and go, you don't want to f*** with Shady. (laughs) Shady will f***ing kill you. (laughs) They'd all have to go, ooh, we know this one. Whether or not you accepted the idea that there was a proper way to do things, including music, betrayed your attitude to the changes that were happening in society as a whole. Now, something that may have reinforced Beethoven's Republican sympathies was his relationships with women. He fell in love with the Countess Julieta Wichiardi, who he wanted to marry, but he claimed that he couldn't because... She is not of my class. And in fact, this was her decision, and she suddenly left Beethoven to marry Count von Gallenberg. And when Beethoven heard this, he disappeared for three days, eventually turning up in the corner of a garden in the palace of another countess. <laughs> then his main employer, Prince Lichnowsky, asked Beethoven to play for the amusement of the prince's guests, 
and he refused, and the prince went berserk. So Beethoven broke off relations, sending a letter saying, Prince, what you are, you are by circumstance and birth. What I am, I am through myself. There are, and always will be, thousands of princes, but there is only one Beethoven. <laughs> and he had another reason for getting stroppier. From his mid-twenties, he started going deaf. And in a letter, he described how... My ears continue to hum and buzz day and night. I can hear sounds, but cannot make out the words. If anyone shouts, I cannot bear it. I have often cursed my creator and my existence. I have been brought to the depths of despair. A little more, and I would have put an end to my life. Art alone stayed my hand. So he set about writing an opera, which is an odd choice of behaviour when you're feeling suicidal, isn't it? To work on an art form in which one of the rules is that all the main characters have to end up stabbed. <laughs> and then sing a song called I've Been Stabbed. <laughs> but before classical music, opera had emerged as the main form of music outside the royal court in which the political issues of the day were discussed. In fact, opera eventually proved so capable of inspiration that after a performance of La Muette de Portici in Brussels, the audience stormed the courthouse, beginning the revolution that led to Belgian independence. What went wrong with the place after a start like that? <laughs> Everyone must have thought, This place is crazy! Belgium's gonna be thrills, thrills, thrills! <laughs> and Beethoven's opera, eventually called Fidelio, was an exploration of the themes he'd grappled with throughout his life. One musicologist wrote, The more Beethoven revised the opera, the more deeply he impregnated it with the spirit of the French Revolution. He was also working on two more symphonies to be performed at the Vienna Theatre at the end of 1806. One was the Fifth Symphony, of which a typical description in one biography is The extreme integration of the first movement demanded matching integration for the symphony. A kind of narrative in which C major gradually and ultimately overwhelms C minor. Or put more simply... anyone describe that as anything other than get me a horse and spear? I don't care whether it's integrated or not. I want to invade somewhere. <laughs> but after its first performance, its reception was summed up by the reaction of Johann Friedrich Reichardt. A large, very protracted, over-long symphony. The cello part is 34 pages long alone. The copyists, who are paid by the page, are certainly maximising their income. <laughs> The other symphony of that time was his sixth, which became known as the Pastoral Symphony, the one that starts like this. And ends like this. Which was another original idea, and that he aimed not just to paint a picture, but here to tell a story about life for the peasants in his favourite retreat in Heiligenstadt. So the movements have titles such as... Seen by the Brook, Merry Gathering of Country People, Thunderstorm, Shepherd's Song, and Thanks to God After the Storm. Which definitely places it in that time. Firstly, because if you wrote a symphony now about the countryside, the movements would have to be called... Kids hanging about all night by the spa. <laughs> Joyrider's Song, and you don't want to go up Ipswich, it's a rat race up there. <laughs> the whole story is usually assumed to be a tale of merry peasants, unsettled by a storm until it clears and then they can reap the harvest. But can any story of peasants have been that simple at that time? 
Thirty years earlier, a famine across Bohemia had wiped out 250,000 people. The peasants of France had been crucial to the revolution that remained his inspiration. So a symphony about peasants in Austria in 1808 was charged with meaning, just as if someone wrote a symphony about peasants in Vietnam in the 1970s, and then someone said... Isn't it lovely? There's the bit where they're ploughing the rice fields, and in the background there's a pretty little helicopter. <laughs> Around this time, Beethoven proposed to an 18-year-old called Therese, who turned him down. And then, instead of being gently consoled about the matter, Beethoven witnessed Vienna being invaded by Napoleon. Which is turmoil enough as it is, isn't it, seeing your hometown destroyed by the bloke who used to be your hero? But on top of that, the sound of the cannon fire was agony for Beethoven's ears, and he had to spend the day hiding in a basement with pillows over his head. And by the time the invasion was complete, Beethoven had become a fervent nationalist, this time in opposition to Napoleon, which is understandable, I suppose, just from the point of view of the earache. But the combination of deafness, republicanism and general dismay resulted in some fantastic genius behaviour. He became obsessed with coffee, insisting that every cup had to be made with exactly 60 beans. And once you know that about him, you know that if you went back in time and met him, that would be the thing, wouldn't it? You'd want to make him a cup of coffee with 59 beans to see if he went, oh, this is weak! <laughs> or one with 61 to see if he went, good God, I'll be up all night. <laughs> and according to his secretary... No one could send him a birthday card unless they wanted to see him fly into a rage, screaming about social tomfoolery and two-faced deception. He's lucky no one sent him a singing telegram on his birthday. To wish you a happy birthday, I have come round here to sing. But it seems a waste of time, cos you can't hear a bloody thing. <laughs> and he developed a strange routine that his secretary described. He would stride around his room with staring eyes, humming loudly, jot something down, then pour large pitchers of water over his hands. Unfortunately, he came into conflict with the landlord, for so much water was spilled that it went right through the floor and was the reason for his unpopularity as a tenant. Well, I think you can forgive a little bit of eccentricity, seeing as at the end of it he came out with stuff like he did. You might not be quite so tolerant of someone if they prowled around the house all week humming and ruining downstairs and then went, FINISHED! Love me for a reason, let the reason be love. <laughs> Sorry about the mess. <laughs> and his friend Reese wrote... One day we were eating lunch in the Swan Inn and the waiter brought Beethoven the wrong dish. He took the dish, a Lugenbratel with plenty of gravy, and flung it at the waiter's head. He and Beethoven shouted and abused each other. Finally, Beethoven burst out laughing at the sight of the waiter with gravy dripping down his face and began licking it up with his tongue. <laughs> but this was how he carried on almost all the time. In a letter to his friend Hummel, he wrote, You are a false dog, and may the hangman do away with all false dogs. Then the next day, he wrote him another letter. You are an honest fellow, and I now realise that you were right. Kisses from your Beethoven, also called Dumpling. <laughs> and these extremes extended to every area of his personal life. In 1812, he wrote a series of letters addressed to his immortal beloved. I can live either wholly with you or not at all. I've decided to wander in the distance until I can fly into your arms and send my soul surrounded by you into the realm of the spirits. Must have been quite exciting getting a love letter from Beethoven. You'd never know what was coming next. 
could be my unceasing desire for your sweet caresses and the touch of your fair hands upon my neck can only be broken by the realization that this marmalade you bought is two days past its sell-by date. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Murder me? I hope you're mauled by a tiger. Yours, your ever-devoted symphony sausage, loving Ludwig. <laughs> And no one has ever discovered who the letters were addressed to. But more speculation has gone into this than almost into any other aspect of his life. As if it makes any difference. We don't know them. It's like in an office when people hear someone's got a new boyfriend and they spend all day going, Who is it then? Who is he, eh? Who is it? It's someone you don't know! <laughs> so if she says Barry, all you can do is go, Ooh, Barry, the bloke I've never heard of. I wouldn't have thought he was your type. <laughs> Whoever the immortal beloved was, though, we do know that Beethoven ended up living without them at all. Now, since the disillusionment over Napoleon, he'd become increasingly strident about supporting the European armies that were opposing him. He agreed to write a piece of music for a concert to celebrate another of Napoleon's defeats against the Duke of Wellington in Spain. Not only that, but the piece included a rousing chorus of Rule Britannia and then God Save the King, and for the first time, his critics decided he was marvellous. Which usually happens when a musician comes out with their worst ever cack. Must have felt like Captain Sensible when he'd done Happy Talk. <laughs> but once the French armies were defeated, the Austrian aristocracy under Emperor France took over most of the government positions, and Austria became almost a police state. So some of Beethoven's original attitudes resurfaced. In 1812, Beethoven wrote to a friend. Yesterday, Goethe and I met the entire imperial family. I pulled my hat on my head and buttoned my overcoat. Goethe, hat in hand, stood at the side, bowing deeply. I gave him a thorough dressing down, showed him no mercy and reproached him for his sins. But his most dramatic statement came with his Ninth Symphony. For several years he'd wanted to build a symphony around the poem by Schiller, Andy Freuder, that claimed simply that all men were brothers. And he finished it in 1823, and while all men are brothers might not seem very challenging, to the generation brought up before the French Revolution, it reaffirmed the spirit of revolution, that a beggar was the brother of a prince, which may be why the theatre was packed for the opening except for the royal box that was empty. And it is a fantastic tune. A fairly simple as messages go, with two themes, brothers and joy. So what happened to it? Well, amongst other things, it became the official anthem for NATO. Because that's the first thing you think of, isn't it? All men are brothers, joy, NATO. <laughs> I suppose it was either that or give peace a chance. <laughs> Even worse are these James Last types who play their weedy versions of it, of which the worst of all time must be Klaus Wunderlich, who did this. Anyone be that evil? <laughs> it's owed to joy, not owed to wandering around B and Q in a stupefied daze. <laughs> By this time, Beethoven was so deaf he carried around conversation books at all times for people to write in. Maybe he should have tried these earlier. He wouldn't have got in fights so much if he'd had to write everything down, because no one's going to go. What did you say? You erred. <laughs> Do you want some? 
Leave it. Lud. Big. He's not worth it. But he did conduct a performance of his opera at the Josefstadt Theatre, insistent that it was possible to conduct without hearing anything. And then everyone was playing the loud bits quiet and the quiet bits loud until the whole thing fell apart and he had to be led away. In the 1820s, his ailments grew stronger. The grumpiness was more furious and eventually he sought refuge in the bottle until he got pancreatitis and cirrhosis of the liver and in 1827 he died. And ever since, the world has fought for his legacy. The vast German labour movement was claiming Beethoven for the left. But the best effort of the left was to stage a concert in a brewery. <laughs> which they declared was... The first time the Ninth Symphony has been played by and for the working class. During the First World War, one minister proposed to... Drop hundreds of thousands of copies of the songs of the great master. Beyond the grave, Beethoven is with his great compatriots. After the First World War, a Beethoven concert was put on dedicated to peace and freedom. But the press went mad, accusing the organisers of... Inspiring the proclamation of a Soviet republic by revolutionary sailors. <laughs> See, people, not the Germans. At least they're a nation that thinks we'd better ban that symphony or they'll jump in a boat and proclaim a republic. <laughs> in England, it'd be banned because you can't make all that noise. It's nearly a quarter to nine. <laughs> Then, when Hitler was in power, a left-wing choir worked underground, performing for Dalio until they were raided by the Gestapo. Whereas the Nazis declared Beethoven... The schoolmaster of the nation! Beethoven concerts were performed for the Hitler Youth, but first they had to rewrite descriptions of him, cutting out all the references to his dark complexion and pretending that he had blue eyes. So it's impossible to say what Beethoven would have thought about today, because he died in 1827. <laughs> But we do know he was inspired by the times he lived through. So inspired by them that he could use music to convey love, despair, hope and grief in the way that he did. And for that, he became the founder of a style of music that was adopted by Wagner, Shostakovich, Little Richard, Rita Franklin, Jimi Hendrix, The Clash, Nirvana and Public Enemy. <laughs> And the very opposite of hearsay, who are so depressing, because at least with synthetic bands before, you could say to people, look, they're conning you, they're not a real band, it's all made up. But now with hearsay, they do it in front of everybody and people still fall for it. <laughs> it's like falling for the three-card trick, but with the cards face up. <laughs> Which one's the queen? Is that the queen? No, I've got a face up, you tosspot! And there's all these other passionless, soulless menaces like Mick Hutnell and Celine Dion and the rubbish they put when you ring orange. <laughs> Threatening to seep into our heads and turn our brains to pulp and snivelly bands like Fleetwood Mac that suburban people in their neighbourhood watch groups go and see and think they're still young and a bit raunchy because they stand up and clap and jiggle a little bit side to side going, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Paul McCartney's no better with his song for USA that went, freedom, freedom, we've all got to fight for our freedom. But if your five-year-old child wrote that, you'd send him to one of these behaviour people. <laughs> and then he said, well, I am normally a pacifist, but I can't be while there's a war on. <laughs> Might be as well be a vegetarian between meals. <laughs> Proving that what's happening is that the Beatles are dying in the reverse order to what they should have done. <laughs> 
We can't know what Beethoven would have thought about the modern world, but we can say that if he was around now to introduce his own concerts, instead of saying, this next tune comes in five movements, he'd go, this next one's about poxy nobles and scumbag Republicans who become emperors and bastard birthday cards and women who run off with cows and waiters who deserve to be covered in gravy and how I hate being deaf. <laughs> The Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Mel Hudson and Martin Heider. The producer was Lucy Armitage.